They want something they can plug in, they can evaluate software, maybe run some sample code, kind of look at performance metrics before they decide to jump in and actually take you into their products. On this episode of Embedded Insiders, Rich and Dave Presack, Vice President of Technical Solutions and Selling at Ambic, discuss the need for development kits, what engineers are looking for when selecting one, and Ambic's role in providing both new and existing customers with this hardware. Next, we're back with another episode of Dev Talk with Rich and Vin, where this week the two are also discussing development boards, but more specifically, their rise in popularity, their cost efficiency, and the different target applications that can be achieved by using one. But first, Brandon and Rich are once again discussing the potential death of the 8-bit microcontroller. With the prevalence of the 32-bit microcontroller, which offers a lot more performance, makers of these CPUs continue to drive their prices down with the hope that eventually they'll replace the 8-bit CPUs. But we aren't there yet, and only time will tell. Good afternoon, Rich Nass, Executive Vice President with Open Systems Media here for this week's Embedded Insiders podcast. I am joined by Brandon Lewis, our Editor-in-Chief. How are you doing, Brandon? I'm fine. How are you? Good, thank you. So I think I'm going to bring up a topic that I've brought up in the past, and it seems to come and go and come and go, and it's come yet again. And that would be the potential death of the 8-bit microcontroller. Are are you familiar with this topic? Yes, covered more than once for sure on Embedded Insiders. Yeah, I don't understand why it keeps coming back, but it has come back again with an announcement from ST Microelectronics, where they yet again say that they have the solution that's going to be the 8-bit microcontroller death knell. The last time we did this, from my memory, was when TI came out with a part that integrated an RMM0 with a Bluetooth transceiver, which I thought was really cool, for about 75 cents. But it has to be like two years since that announcement, and 8-bit clearly hasn't gone away. ST would not commit to a price, but we sort of got out of them that they're they're looking at around 25 cents. Mm-hmm. Comment before I babble on further? Well, I mean, there's a huge installed base of 8-bit micros and, you know, whether or not they're going to ever completely, air quotes, die, I think that that, that might be, that, there might be uh, other people doing the embedded insiders by the time we figure that out. But the... Well, the, well, well, hold on. I want to put a date on that. How much longer are we doing embedded insiders? Well, embedded insiders itself is like it's it's an it's an idea. It lives on, but you and I doing embedded insiders is years, many years. Okay, I didn't know if we were measuring in years, decades, or or what? Or light years? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Buzz. <laughs> um, I do think that the biggest threat to the 8-bit micro is some are components that have, you know, a specialized, you know, piece of logic integrated with them that can be done very quickly. Now, whether that's some sort of accelerator, uh, I don't know if the if, if an M0, you know, is the thing is just integrating these M0s that are super low cost or, or in some cases, no cost is, is going to be the, the one thing. 
I, I suspect it'll probably be a, a number of different, you know, approaches, different technologies and architectures that eventually just render the need to, to have a discrete 8-bit micro unnecessary. But I don't know that it's going to be one specific thing. Are you subliminally promoting risk five? I was thinking risk five when I brought up the, the M0 comment. Yeah, even even microchip has these, uh, I'm stepping aside from the risk five thing for a moment. Even microchip has these specialized intelligent analog blocks, core independent peripherals that can you know, perform a lot of the function that an 8-bit micro would. Um, you could drop a, a, a air quotes free risk five core, you know, somewhere in your SOC design or, or packaged with, you know, some, whatever your other, whatever else you need on your, on your silicon to do whatever the, your 8-bit was doing separately. So there are a lot of different options coming out now that I don't think have been broadly available in the past at low enough price points to make them make sense. But, but there are enough out there now that I think we can start seeing some scale. Well, we're still looking at single digit pennies for a lot of these applications for the toys and stuff like that. The things that are produced in the quantities of hundreds of thousands and or millions. So even 25 cents doesn't cut it in my view. So I'm not sold yet either that 8-bit's going away. Yeah, I, I don't think that that's the way that you're going to be able to get there. I really think it has to be, you know, the only ways that you're you're going to be able to, to do that now, to compete now on price at volume is through the, an integration of some sort of IP uh, with another, you know, into an SOC that's doing multiple functions. Um, I, I don't really see that you're going to have some discrete uh, chip. I mean, it's just basic economics, right? I mean, you, the number of 8-bits that are getting cranked out there right now are, is way too high. You mean like dropping a Bluetooth transceiver into the same die? Right. But then necessarily, you know, you're not, and I think this is probably where the, I haven't seen the SD announcement, but I think it's probably where they're coming in is like, okay, well, what's the cost of your discrete 8-bit plus whatever you were doing for Bluetooth, you know, we're going to do for Bluetooth. I mean, if you integrate the two, I'm sure you're going to find some cost savings there. I would agree with you. Cool. So 8-bit eight, eight sticking around, you're saying? Um, well, I don't know if it's even, should we, should we ask our friends at Microtrip if they want to come in and, and give us some information on the 8-bit market? I know they're always happy to tell us how, how strong it still is. Yep. And this is a cross promotion because we are speaking to Microchip as part of the Embedded Executive podcast shortly. So uh, you'll have to tune in there to get the story on that one. All right. Well, I'll be listening. Now, Rich and Dave Kresak discuss the benefits of using development boards to achieve a faster time to market and even for evaluation purposes. So we're talking a lot about dev kits on this particular podcast. So I thought it would make sense to bring somebody on who actually produces these dev kits. And generally these come from the CPU vendors because it's the best way to get a, an engineer start on their design with that CPU. So I have Dave Presak. He is the vice president of technical solutions selling for Ambic. How you doing, Dave? Hey, really good, Rich. Thanks for having me on. So what we've been talking about is the need for dev kits. And there's obviously evaluation boards, dev kits. I use those interchangeably. Let's start right there. Is, is that something you give away to your 
customers, you give them one when the hopes that they'll turn around and buy a hundred thousand, half a million microprocessors. Is, is that how it works? So actually, you know, we engage with either well-established customers to new potential customers with hardware. Uh, it's kind of a big ask to, to go to an engineer to say, you're going to have to lay out a board you know, we'll send you parts to be able to evaluate it to see if it's something you want, right? So what they're looking for is something before, you know, the kick the tires, they want something they can plug in, they can evaluate software, maybe run some sample code, kind of look at performance metrics before they decide to jump in and actually take you into their product. So eval boards are, are tailored to that. Now we have additional boards. One, for example, is what we call our display kit, which adds a little personality to it. So if you plug it in, now you've got a display you can write to it. You can do a lot more in your software development. You can play with the, the different rendering tools on the graphics. You can do a lot more with that, which means now you're getting really close to, while I'm waiting for this board to come back with your product on it, I can actually start doing development with it. So both the eval boards and the display kits, or as you're calling them, uh, reference designs, make it much easier for them to get faster time to market. But even for just evaluating the parts, sending a part that's almost impossible to solder down on a hand solder down on a board, you're, it's a big ask for the engineer to be able to go out and you know design a whole system just to evaluate you. That's really where they're from. Do you ever expect somebody to prototype with that evaluation board, or is that purely for getting your software written and, and everything done? So that's a very good question. That's that, that brings you to eval boards versus reference designs or because eval boards tend to have a lot more stuff on the board because we don't know what the customer's final use is going to be. So there'll be connectors, there'll be memory, there'll be power, there'll be a lot of things that you wouldn't see in a production product in order to evaluate the parts. The reference designs are much more tailored to, we know what the end application is, so we're gonna take all the extraneous parts off of it. And those you really could go to production with if you so choose to, but mostly we, we develop the eval boards because you know CPUs go everywhere, right? There could be a thousand, 10,000 uses. So we try to make them more generic. And because of that, they're good for everybody, but not great for any specific application. And I wouldn't have even asked that question up until like a year or a year or so ago. When with the Raspberry Pi phenomenon, I happened to be talking to a bunch of engineers and they were telling me that they were doing their evaluation on Raspberry Pi with the intention of transferring over to something else later. And all of a sudden the design manager came in and said, we need to ship this thing next week. Yeah. I said, well, we don't have time to transfer it over. He said, I don't care, ship it on the Raspberry Pi then. And a new phenomenon was born that we were going to market with, with Raspberry Pis. Do you see the same thing? Oh, absolutely. Because like I said, you can port all of your code to, you can have all the IO functioning. Now, if it's the wrong form factor, but most of the time, if you've got a big, you know, especially for proof of concepts for the customers, yeah, they'll use their eval boards connected into their system to be able to showcase it for their customers before they actually commit to creating actual eval boards. So yes, absolutely. We see our boards used in a pre-production, at least methodology uh, for the go-to-market strategy for them. What's the involvement of Ambic with these customers once they have the board? Is it, here you go, you're on your own, or is it deeply involved or somewhere in the middle? So I would say we try to enable as much as we can with our customers. So when you get the board, it's not just a here, have you, you know, have a nice day. We'll send the QR code to send you to our website. There is a ton of example codes to get your rolling and different applications and how to set things up. So there's a lot of self-help. And then, yes, we do have a, uh, a online support tool for people to, if they have questions or if they're having problems with. And we have field engineers that would actually, could reach out and help them out. 
But we, what we try to do is because, again, we don't know what they're going to use them for. And there's 10,000 type of customers. We want them to, to be able to serve themselves as best they can. So we try to do as much as we can with, uh, you know, with reference codes and examples for them. I really thought you were going to give me the answer that I hate, which is, oh, it depends. <laughs> well, as an engineer, that's my favorite, favorite word, but, but no, it really is. We, we do try to set that up and, we're, and as we work with more customers, we get more code. So, and then what we want to do eventually is to really get more of a, of a community effort where people can start swapping, you know, code bytes to, to each other. Uh, to, and again, to, to do some more self-help. Do you have a place for that open source code? We have our repository in our system, but we, we haven't gotten to the point where we really are open, you know, like a, an open community. Uh, we're still we're working on that right now, but we do have, if you sign in and give us your uh, information, you have access to all that code. Awesome. Well, thanks for setting me straight. I appreciate it, Dave. <laughs> no, not a worry at all, Rich. Finally, Rich and Vin talked the flexibility, ease of use, and overall convenience of using development boards for production-ready designs. Good afternoon. Welcome to yet another edition of Dev Talk with Vin and Rich. Rich and Vin. Well, I put you first because it's it's only fair. Sometimes you go first. Sometimes I go first. Hey, doing, Vin? I'm good. How are you? Good. Very good. So, if if you're new to the show, this is where we give our opinions about some timely things in the space. We've talked about whether you need an operating system. We've talked about C and versus C++. C++. Plus. Security uh, from inception or where uh, should we consider right, security? Right. Yep. All really timely stuff. And, and if you're listening and you have other stuff you'd like to hear us banter about, feel free to uh, shoot a note to me or to Vin because um, we want to talk about the things that you care about. So the subject du jour is development boards. They are super duper popular from Raspberry Pi to Arduino, to the micro, what do they call them, click boards, to a lot of the vendors have their own boards. So obviously you prototype on this development board. Do you then take this development board to production or do you have to transfer onto something else? to take it to production. And I know you're gonna say it depends, so you're not allowed to say it depends. Go uh, ahead, what's your, what's your answer? Well, in this case, I would not have said it depends. Um, these dev boards are targeted at specific things. The ones from uh, manufacturers directly are targeted toward people evaluating their parts. And sometimes they have a few lights or switches on them, sometimes they don't, and you can plug them into your own circuits. And so they want to make them inexpensive. They certainly don't go through the same level of qualification that a product that was dedicated to production quality use would go through for sure. You wouldn't be able to afford them as a dev board. When it comes to some of the dev board platforms that are targeted toward makers and hobbyists and even engineers who are doing prototyping, they really are designed for that case. And so when you look at them, you realize that, uh, first of all, they're much larger than just putting the chip on the board. So if size and packaging matters, that's a big deal. The connectivity by definition is a plug-in. A lot of them are not gold pins. You and I lived through the period where people were going from gold sockets for chips that would go into sockets, into sockets that weren't gold. And you find that over time in certain environments, there's corrosion. 
you know, basically, and I talk about this with my students all the time as well. There's a difference between being a maker and being an engineer. A maker has to make one work. An engineer has to be able to make hundreds or hundreds of thousands or even millions work. And those are two very different things. We have a category that we define as a maker pro. This is a an engineer who works in his own garage making one with the expectation that if the one is successful, it will turn into many thousands. And a lot of people cater for that maker pro. People who were like the semiconductor vendors, they want that maker pro. And it's 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 important to make the distinction because nobody wants to support somebody who's going to make one, but they are maybe not happy to support the other guy, but they are willing to support the engineer who is planning to make many thousands. I was going to add to that just before I lose my train of thought, because I do that because I'm old. On, on a lot of these platforms, they're putting the connectors in so you can actually work on a, a Pi or some other platform and just plug into somebody else's standard board. So I get the feeling that they want you to go to production with these things. You know, they may want you to because it's revenue, but I mean, I can tell you that I've made an awful lot of money converting designs that someone thought they could make uh, go to production with these dev boards and they were getting failures in the field or they were difficult to package in any way that, that was shippable. So, you know, I think the important thing to note is that these boards have lowered the bar for prototyping probably as much as doing PC board layout and schematic capture on a Windows or Mac PC, right? You and I remember the days when CAD was in a darkened room, ran on, on huge terminals that were connected to a mainframe, and only a select few had access and the ability. Now you can even get online. There are some layout tools and schematic tools that you don't even have to load on your computer. You can do them on the web and press a button and the same supplier will make the boards for you and ship them to your house for a couple of bucks, right? You're not wire wrapping things anymore. You're not doing any of that. And that really lowered the bar for prototyping. This takes that to a whole nother level where you actually have a reliable starter system. You've got processor, you've got clock, you've got IO, you've got some switches, you have connectivity to the PC for software development, all built on these boards, which tremendously accelerates at least the beginning part of prototyping. I probably 80% of the time myself will start with one of these boards, usually a vendor's board, because there's a particular processor that I want to use. And I'm typically not using the libraries that come with these other board platforms, right? Because in my case, I'm doing a lot of real-time stuff and those libraries just aren't fast enough. Uh, a lot of them are not certified and some of my you know, design customers need to have code that they can reliably say has been vetted. But there's no question that you can start a lot of these designs. And even if you do make a board, you make a board that has your particular hardware on it to drive your motors or your lights or your displays and plug one of these boards in. I've done tons of not only prototyping, but even proof of concept. Somebody in marketing wants to know if this is even possible or if a customer would be interested. You could slap something together incredibly quickly. The part about the code, I think you are the exception. I think that the majority of these folks are, are just pulling down open source software and having 80, 85, 90% of the design done for them. 
in terms of the software. And that's sort of bringing us back full circle. That's the big part of the popularity of these things that so much of the work is done for you already. Yeah, I think that's the one where I would say it depends. It depends on the kind of engineer you have been historically. If you write reusable code modules, you will have a lot of this stuff already and you won't need a lot of the open source stuff. Or you've already used one, you've tweaked it for your own use and you can drop it in again anyway. There are tons of libraries out there for off-the-shelf displays. There's tons of libraries out there for sensors, especially a lot of these I2C sensors. There are libraries for temperature humidity sensors, for pressure sensors, for all kinds of stuff where you just drop the library in, but you can still call it from your C code. You know, we, we had part of this discussion a few weeks ago when we talked about operating systems. You can write a scheduler in five minutes. And once you've done that, you've got your setup stuff, then you have your loop, and you are very close to what a lot of these development boards already have out of the box without the driver modules. But if you've been writing code this way for a while, you have a bunch of your own that are dedicated to the particular chips that you use. If you're doing a lot of stuff, you already have an EEPROM that you like or, a, or an E-squared device that you like on I-squared C. You already have a real-time clock that you like to use. You already have sensors that you like to use. I use the same family of temperature humidity sensors and I've used it now for 15 years. So that's just part of what kind of an engineer and engineering practices you have. Very good. I do appreciate that you waited until we were just about done before you said it depends. And we're <laughs> going to wrap up this section of Dev Talk with Vin and Rich. Thank you much, Vin. Thanks, Rich. Don't forget to let us know which topics you'd like to hear Rich and Vin discuss next by clicking the contact us link on our site. But as always, thanks for listening to this edition of Embedded Insiders. For more daily news, videos, and podcasts, visit our website at embeddedcomputing.com.